0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to America's Web Radio and the Doctor's Lounge. I'm Dr. Scott Barber, and today we're going to talk about the Wuhan China virus. Now, typically on our show, we like to discuss medicine. I like to discuss medicine. I like to compare and contrast government-run healthcare or socialized medicine to free market medicine. And I'm very much an advocate of free, mar- free market medicine. And uh, I've been in medicine for approximately 30 years now. And I have a lot of opinions. I have a lot of experience, a lot of observations about free market medicine and socialized medicine that I would like to share with you people. And hopefully, I can help people understand why it's in our best interest to start expanding the free market. Now, over our last several shows, the Wuhan-China virus pandemic has been raging, and I've been meaning to talk about it on each of my shows, and we've kind of gotten busy talking about other things, and we never have really gotten to talk about this pandemic, and so I felt today would be a good time to review what has happened and how we got here with this pandemic, and to kind of give you some of my observations about how this unfolded, because I think it'll be illuminating. And hopefully, I'll be able to give you guys some information to be able to do some critical thinking and hopefully relieve some of your fears and anxieties about what's going on. Now, the first thing I want to say, because anybody who talks about this pandemic, who doesn't first acknowledge that every life is precious, and that as a physician, my whole career, my whole my whole being, everything I do in life is designed to promote the well-being of my fellow human beings. And so I understand that this pandemic has affected a lot of people. I recognize that it is a serious threat. It is something to be considered. But we face threats in our lives every day, and we don't destroy the economy and create the greatest economic disaster in human history. We currently have 26 million, uh, 26 million people filing for unemployment. We've just passed spending bills of trillions and trillions of dollars on top of the trillions and trillions of dollars that we don't have. And the economic consequences of our reaction to this pandemic – is going to go on for a long time, and it's going to be very damaging to us. Now, I'm an optimistic person. I believe in the American people, and I know we're going to get out of this. But the first thing we need to do is develop some understanding about what's happening and how we got here. I would like to start out by letting everybody understand that when I went to medical school 28 years ago, um I studied the coronavirus. The coronavirus is not a new virus. It's, it's a virus that we understand. I know that it's an RNA virus, that it's an encapsulated virus. I know it causes uh, respiratory infections. It's the type of virus that is normally cleared, meaning once somebody gets sick and gets through the initial injury, uh, they recover. Back in probably December, through my Twitter... I was aware that something was going on in China with this coronavirus. I'm not sure when I knew that it was a coronavirus, but I knew something was going on because it's my job to understand healthcare, And so my antenna went up that there was a potential threat in China. And because I understand epidemiology and pandemics, I paid attention to it. And I can remember sometime in December talking to my surgical center coordinator that we should plan on having um, extra masks, extra what we call patient protection equipment. Everybody knows it these days as PPE. So I said, listen, we need to get extra gloves, extra masks, and I would like to get some reusable masks and gowns and things so that if the worst happened, I would be able to continue operating in my surgery center. At the time that I made this request to my surgery center coordinator, I didn't really appreciate the fact that this pandemic was going to turn into what it has turned in. The reason I even bring it up to you is to let you know that I have been following this very, very closely from the beginning, and I feel like I have an educated person's point of view, and I'm going to share some of that with you today. Now, one of the epiphanies I made in the last couple of weeks was uh, my wife is always telling me that... uh, if you think nice things and you don't say it, you don't get credit. So I'll, I'll think to myself, her hair looks nice after she gets it done, or she's wearing a dress that makes her look pretty. And she'll say, you didn't say anything about my hairdress. And I'll say, well, I was thinking it. And she goes, it doesn't count if you don't say it. Well, as I was observing this pandemic unfold, I had a perspective that was different from most people. I understood the coronavirus. I understood the threat. And... Because I understood it, I was never that panicked. So back in December uh, and January, when news outlets were telling us that millions of people were going to die from this pandemic, I knew that that was not true. I didn't say anything about it, but it was a thought bubble that I had. And then as the pandemic started to play out, I was able to see some of the numbers from Italy. I was able to understand that most of the people that were having trouble... Were older people in their seventies and eighties that most of them, greater than ninety percent of them, had other comorbidities, and so the threat to young healthy people was small. And so again, I wasn't concerned. And as time, um, as time went on, I became more and more confident that this we were going to be able to address this pandemic and get through it with, with. Uh, I don't want to say uh, I don't want to be insensitive, not a minimum of life, but it, it was it was not going to turn into this millions and millions of death. And so I proceeded accordingly with my practice. Well, as time went on, I started to hear rumblings within my practice of employees uh, who were very nervous. And it quickly became apparent to me that the red line hysteria that's presented on the news media every day was sending people into severe panic, including my wife. And my wife, who's a very intelligent, educated person, was highly concerned about the the ramifications of this coronavirus pandemic, and actually to the point of challenging me on some of my assertions. So this sort of understanding about the red line hysteria, panicking people uh, into really irrational behavior sort of compelled me to put together my observations of this entire uh, experience from the beginning. And hopefully some of my observations will allow you guys to to be more calm and uh, less pessimistic. One of the first things I would say is, when I I heard that this coronavirus was coming down, I made some assumptions. People need to understand that different viruses behave differently and there's a lot of different kinds of viruses that behave differently and so I have a different fear of them just like I have a different fear of a garden snake versus a king cobra. They're both snakes but one doesn't bother me at all and the other one bothers me tremendously. Well, viruses are the same way. We have common colds that people contract all the time. We feel a little ill. We go to the pharmacy and get some NyQuil, maybe take some Tylenol for a headache. The sickness passes, and then we kind of get on with our lives, and we don't really lose too much sleep over it. There are other viruses like Ebola. Ebola that are hemorrhagic fevers, primarily in Central Africa and West Africa. These viruses cause 90% fatality, And when these outbreaks occur, it causes tremendous devastation. But they also have certain characteristics of only being transmitted with body fluids. So you don't really get Ebola by just passing somebody with Ebola. You have to sort of touch them and get their body fluids onto you in order to contract an infection. Now, When you contract an infection, almost everybody dies from it, so it's a serious situation. Other viruses are like HIV and hepatitis B. These viruses are not cleared by the body, so when you get infected, you stay infected, and they can cause damage to your body in perpetuity. And so these viruses give me a different perspective. Now, coronavirus, which is a family of viruses that commonly causes respiratory tract infections. And we over the years have referred to them and about eight to 10 other viruses commonly as the flu. So most people are aware of influenza. Uh, We've had some very serious influenza outbreaks in the past. Most people have heard of the Spanish flu in 1918. that killed millions of people. There was the Hong Kong flu in the late fifties where a lot of people died. We had in 2009 and 2010 the SARS outbreak, which did tremendous damage, and now we have um, we have another respiratory illness outbreak that's similar to the flu, not the same thing, but it has some similarities. So. The reason I even bring this up is to make the point that this is not an unprecedented experience as a, as a, as a species of human beings. We've had to deal with these pandemic outbreaks in the past and our responses in the past have been very different to the responses that we've had today. And I want to talk a little bit about some of that stuff. I'm not going to get really into any conspiracy theories about things that are going on, but I'm simply going to make some observations and allow you guys to make your own own judgments about what's going on. But it's December. I know that there's this outbreak of coronavirus in my mind. I've already kind of started to make preparations for the potential for a pandemic uh, at my own practice. I'm starting to think through the problem, which is what I do as a doctor. My job is critical thinking and to assess risk and then develop treatment plans by assessing that risk. And I usually present my treatment plans to my patients in order of decreasing risk. So you want to do the things that are have the highest potential for success and the lowest potential for negative effects. And that's why the Hippocratic Oath is do no harm, is because that's how we attack all our problems. What can we do that will do no harm and have potential benefit? So I made the assessment that the coronavirus – was a typical upper respiratory tract infection. Now, this particular strain of virus, I didn't understand how virulent it was. I didn't understand the extent of how pathogenic it was, just like the flu. Some flus are not very serious and don't cause a lot of problems. Other flus are very serious, like the 1918 flu, the Hong Kong flu, and cause lots of death. And the viruses are also different in the types of people they affect. Sometimes we have flus that attack young people. Sometimes we have flus that attack old people. And so there were questions that I wanted to know. And again, when this first came around, I did not trust the Chinese government. And I also know that our media uh, is, is, uh, well to say the least, our media is not trustworthy these days. So there's a lot of information out there, and not all of it is truthful, and I like to be able to verify things and and assess things that I can judge for myself. So I understood right away the coronavirus was a family of viruses that typically cause upper respiratory tract infections, and Anthony Fauci, who's the director of the NIH, he's a virologist, he's been on the front lines of hiv and ebola and and um now this coronavirus outbreak and he's been put up on tv and presented to us as the world's expert on epidemiology and virology and i've gotten to a point in my career where i don't really i don't really give people credit just because of their credentials education and position mean nothing to me and that's just because I've lived a long enough life that I understand that people are people it doesn't matter how powerful you are or what position you have you're still a human being subject to the same frailties that we all are we're all sinners and so I didn't really have an opinion of dr fauci that's not true I'll get back into it in a little bit I did have a little bit of an opinion based on how he handled the Ebola outbreak I'll talk about that in a minute but Fauci came out in January and told us there was nothing to worry about with this coronavirus. And this was the same thing that the Chinese government was reporting. And I thought to myself at the time, gee, that's kind of an odd comment to make because I'm an educated man. Um, I've studied virology and epidemiology. My life is healthcare, And I wouldn't have made that assessment. I mean, we didn't have the information at the time. He certainly didn't have the information. And we know that coronavirus does transmit human-to-human in other strains, uh, and apparently in this one, too. And we also know that uh, it could potentially be a serious respiratory tract infection. So I thought that his assertion that there was nothing to worry about was, was inaccurate, at best. So time goes on, and the president issues a ban on the flights from China, which to me at this point through my Twitter and other things that I trusted, we already knew something very serious was going on in China. I didn't know how serious it was, but I knew it was serious. And the president enacted a a travel ban from China, which to me was just common sense. And people attacked him for being racist and xenophobic and and, and all of these things. And I'm looking at it purely from a medical situation. You've got a pandemic and the simplest thing you can do is not allow international travel from a hot zone of a virus that we don't yet understand the full nature and, and danger of this particular virus. And I think it goes without saying that the Chinese Communist Party is not an entity that I put a lot of faith in. So, when they're telling us there's nothing to worry about, but yet I'm watching them lock down their their province, and you know they're they're welding people into their homes. That tells me something significant is going on. But at this point, I still don't know enough to understand how much of a threat this is. But I still have perspective that flu viruses are what they are. I immediately started studying the SARS outbreak in 2009, 2010, and was stunned to learn that we had somewhere around 275,000 hospital admissions in 2009, 2010, that were attributable to the SARS outbreak. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't remember any of this, what's happening today back in 2009, 2010, and that's pretty significant. I believe we had somewhere around 12,000 deaths in the United States that were attributed to the SARS outbreak. And, uh, it, you know, I, I don't know about the testing back then, but uh, that was pretty significant. So here we got this coronavirus that's now starting to appear in, in South Korea and in Italy. And so I was able to watch the numbers in Italy. I've been following the numbers of people getting infected in uh, every country since day one it's really the first thing i do every morning as i get up and i look at these numbers and i try to make an assessment about how serious this threat is now i have to give you some background one of the first things you learn when you go to medical school and residency is how to read scientific information critically and the first thing we learn is that all research all scientific information is contaminated with bias And bias ruins the data that you get. And, you know, if I'm a doctor, for example, and I'm testing something that I've invented and I want it to be a useful product because I'm going to make a lot of money if it is, and I'm the one doing the measurements, there's going to be bias that affects my measurements because I'm going to be influenced to document measurements that make my research look useful so that I can then sell my product and make a profit. That's just normal. That's just what we do. And so when we construct studies, we like to do things to help eliminate viruses. And one of the things we do is called blinding, meaning the patient doesn't know if they're getting the, the, the treatment that we're studying and the doctor doesn't know. That's what we call a double blind. A crossover study means you put the proposed treatment on one group, group A, and see how they react with control group B, and then you switch it so that you put the treatment on on group A, and uh, and then f- see what the control group on the other side looks like, and you see if you get the same data on both on both um, both components of the trial, and that helps give you more useful, more credible data. Um, prospective studies, meaning we're going to start the study today and we're going to go forward and document information is better than what we call a retrospective study, which is to go back and look at data that's already been collected. And the reason is, is when you go back and look at past data, you you don't have a lot of the details about how that data was collected and important things and, and the information is not usually good. So when you hear these comments about This was a double-blind, prospective, randomized, meaning you, um, you know, randomized is making sure that you get a random sampling. You don't get a certain population of people. So, you know, a double-blind, prospective, randomized study with, you know, lots of people enrolled is a better study than a retrospective study. And we understand this. And as scientists, we learn how to read medical literature and scientific literature critically. So having said that, I understand that these things are not easy to to document. I've done medical research and scientific research in the past, and I know that there are certain things that are very difficult to measure, and there are certain things that are inherently biased and one of the things i can tell you is anytime i read an orthopedic study where they're talking about range of motion of a knee or a shoulder or something i always know that i don't trust that very well because in my own experience which is every single day for 30 years i do knee exams and shoulder exams and i can't get my own inter what we call inter observer evaluations to be accurate i could go in and measure your knee and say it was 120 degrees and then come back in 10 minutes later and the next time I measure it, it's 130 degrees. These measurements are very difficult to obtain. And so when I look at studies, I have sort of a critical eye towards looking at that kind of stuff. And so when I'm looking at these numbers online, I'm telling myself, how in the world are they making these? How are they coming up with these numbers? And it's a simple question. How do you know somebody is infected with COVID-19? And you, the the simple answer would be, well, you, you do a test. Well, I'm here to tell you, tests are not universally available, certainly not in Italy. And the uh, the tests are not always perfect. We have in, in medical research and in scientific research what we call false positives, which are the test says it's positive when in fact it's negative. We also have what's called... Um, false negatives meaning it says it's not there when it really is and so studies are not perfect the interpretation of studies are not perfect and the collection of data isn't perfect and when i'm looking at these numbers worldwide and I, you know i'm using them because i need some sort of template to get an idea for i'm just letting you know and suggesting to you that i don't take these numbers at heart because I know you can't measure them. And when this pandemic started breaking out here, I, I made my first, my first order of business was how am I going to protect barber Orthopedics practice? And I thought to myself, well, what we need to do is we need to screen at the front door. Uh, I understand some characteristics about coronavirus. It's an encapsulated virus, which typically makes viruses susceptible to disinfectants. So we got people out wiping down all of my surfaces and doorknobs and things like that on a regular basis, we screened at the door with temperature. We asked patients, have you been in contact with anybody that uh, could potentially be sick? And then if they passed our screening, we took them in immediately to the bathroom and had them wash their hands. And we've been acting and acting this practice since day one, and I've been almost fully open uh, since the beginning, and we haven't had a single incident. And... This we're going to get into this a little bit later. About this is the difference between a free market medicine and a government run healthcare. The government has made rash decisions that I believe were not appropriate decisions, um, based on imperfect information. They're very slow to change into correct, and politics very quickly gets into the decisions that government makes, and that's a very good lesson for us. To be advocates for free market medicine, because in a free market healthcare scenario, your doctor's fidelity is to you. And in the government, um, I can tell you that the, the, their, their fidelity is not necessarily to the patients. And we can see that in the decisions that have been made during the course of this pandemic. So, So we've got a situation now, it's getting into early January, we're starting to see these numbers in Italy, and I'm starting to make the assessment that the virus seems to be affecting people that are old and people that have comorbidities. That means they have other illnesses like heart disease or diabetes, things that make it difficult for them to fight off infection and to tolerate a scenario in this case where your oxygenation is, is damaged and impaired, and it makes it difficult for people to support their their uh, respiratory function. So I'm starting to get this information. Now, Grant, now just so you understand, I'm a community doctor. I'm out there just taking care of my patients, and I'm looking for available information that I could find on Twitter, in the news, and I'm sort of filtering it based on my experiences and what I know and what I trust. And And I would say in retrospect, the decisions that we made at Barber Orthopedics were were good decisions as evidenced by the fact that I was almost completely open, operating on people, taking care of people, and we didn't have a single incident. And this was not a haphazard approach. This was just competent, real-time assessment of available information, critical thinking, the practice of medicine, and guess what? In a free market, if you don't trust me, if you don't feel comfortable, you don't have to come see me. But if you if you want to go out and you want to get your ailments treated, you could come and see me. And that's how our free market works, right? We try to create an environment that works for everybody. So now this information is coming out of Italy. I'm starting to look at the numbers. Now, Again, we talked about, I don't, I don't, I'm not so sure that these numbers are accurate. And I can tell you in my own practice, we had people that had potential exposure to patients that were, had COVID-19, um, infections, but were never sick. So they were positive, but they weren't sick. And this taught me another thing or, or made me aware of another thing that is really, really important. All of these mortality rates, when they were coming out and telling us that the mortality rate of this virus was 4% or 5% or 3.5%, they were simply testing sick people and then looking at the number of those people that they tested that died and telling us that's the mortality rate. Well, that was always ridiculous because you know there's a ton of people out there that don't even know they're sick that are in what we call the denominator. So the more people who are sick... And the number of people who die who stays the same, well, the mortality rate comes down low. And I'm looking at that going, well, wait a second. We know there's tons of people out there who are sick and are not being counted in that number. So I knew right off the bat that a 3% or 4% mortality rate was ridiculous. Now, when we look at the typical flu, that infection rate is something like 0.05%. Now, that's another issue. If you go and you look at um, mortality... It, for the flu, which I tried to do before the show, what you discover very quickly is there's not really any one number that tells you about the mortality for the flu. Because as we talked about earlier, different flus have different virulence, right? The 1918 flu and the Hong Kong flu were very severe and then other flu seasons, not a big deal. Different flus attack different populations of people. Some of them get, uh, attack young people, some of them attack old people. So the only point I'm trying to make through all of this is that you have to look at these numbers with a critical eye. Now, we're going to get into this a little bit more when we come back for this break. You're listening to America's Web Radio in the Doctor Lounge, Doctor's Lounge. I'm Dr. Scott Barber. I'll see you guys in a second. The Docs
1: for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Shirts every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. and listen to The Doctor's Lounge where you get a private insight into the conversations that doctors have amongst themselves. Join us Thursday, 8 a.m. every week.
0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back, everybody, to America's Web Radio and the Doctor's Lounge. I'm Dr. Scott Barber. We're going to continue our discussion of the Wuhan, China virus pandemic. We've been talking so far about my observations of how this pandemic unfolded and how we got to the point we're at. And I'm trying to give you guys some information to look at what's happening critically so that you can make your own decisions. And hopefully by the end of the show, you're going to be like me. I'm more afraid to fly than I am concerned about dying of the Wuhan China virus. So anyway, I was talking about the fact that I was paying attention to these numbers. I was trying to uh, obtain verifiable evidence about who's getting sick, the numbers of people that are getting sick, how it's being transmitted, and then I wanted to know about treatment. What do you do if you do get sick? Because this was the kind of virus that I knew was going to get out into the community. This is not like an Ebola, where we isolate and we wait, you know, in this and usually in the Ebola situation almost everybody dies, and then once that happens, the pandemic or the epidemic is contained. This is not that type of problem, because there are so many people, in fact, maybe even the majority of people who are exposed to COVID-19, and they never get sick. And so they're out there, and they, they clear the infection. They develop antibodies. And what we're hoping is that you develop what we call lifelong immunity. So certain viruses, you get infected, your body develops antibodies, and you don't get that virus again. Other things like influenza we clear the virus, but then the virus goes back next season, it changes and mutates so that it looks different. And so when it comes back the next time, the immunity that you got the year before might not work against the new uh, new infection the following year. And that's what vaccines in influenza are designed to do. They try to anticipate what the virus is going to look like the next year and develop a vaccine that will promote antibodies that attack that new virus. So we Anyway, I'm looking at this now concerned about how I keep the people in my practice healthy and I continue to be able to take care of their medical issues. So I'm looking at the numbers in Italy, and I'm saying to myself, Italy is a socialized country with socialized medicine and doesn't really have the type of infrastructure that we have in the United States. And so in my mind, I was looking at what was happening there and realizing that that's how it's happening in nature, meaning the doctors were not doing a lot to support people who were getting sick. It was simply running its course, and we were seeing what's happened. And what we discovered was old people in their 70s and 80s. And people that had comorbidities were the people who were getting sick. We were able to see that people under 50 that were healthy were virtually never getting sick. And that was very important information to me. The other thing we started to realize is that some data was coming out, we were implementing social distancing in this country. And what we discovered was that California and New York implemented social distancing at about the same time. I think California started three days after New York, but New York has 18 times more cases than California does, but yet they both implemented social distancing. This would suggest to me that social distancing is not necessarily the magic bullet. And I never thought that social distancing was preventing this virus from getting out. It may have slowed the curve down or what we call flatten the curve, but it was never designed to contain the infection. And the reason I know this is, I don't know about you, but I've been to the supermarket. I'm talking to David here. He went to the supermarket. We all touched the fruit and the vegetables and touched cans and things like that. That is not quarantine. We were all exposed, but people don't get sick typically with this disease. At least young, healthy people don't. So, that brings me to sort of my next observation here was, first of all, who's getting sick? How is it transmitted? How deadly is it? The next thing I wanted to know is, <clears throat> how are we going to treat this thing? What happens when when somebody does get sick? Because I knew it's a matter of time. It's going to happen. So what, what I want to know personally as well is, if I do get sick, what are they going to do to treat it? And we started understanding, I, I would tell you that back in December, I knew that hydroxychloroquine was being used around the world and there there that there were reports that hydroxychloroquine was effective at treating the coronavirus. Now, I didn't really pay attention when I was getting it on email and through Twitter and things of that nature because it wasn't happening in this country yet and I wasn't getting my mind on it. But once it came here and once we started implementing social distancing and lockdowns, the cdc was making recommendations to doctors about how to treat our patients i wanted to know this information and it wasn't readily available testing was not readily available so i have had instances in the past few months where one of my employees was exposed and it was very very difficult to obtain testing for that person now i'm an essential business on the front lines A medical doctor taking care of patients, and I was unable to get employees tested. And so we had to implement quarantine practices in order to make sure nobody was sick and and to follow up that way. And that's how I know testing has not been used to get these numbers about mortality uh, or about infection. I also am aware that the mortality rate that kept being presented to us, 3%, 4%, was ridiculous. We knew that far more people were infected and not sick, making the denominator much larger. And so the mortality rate was much lower. So as the pandemic progressed, I started studying hydroxychloroquine more. Now, hydroxychloroquine is a medicine that is used to treat malaria Uh, It's used in lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, and has a 70-year track record. So that is a very long, long track record of safety. It is FDA-approved for these purposes, okay? So we have a drug that is already FDA-approved. It's got a 70-year track record, and it's incredibly safe. There's been some talk in the media about cardiac toxicity, which when I talk to cardiologists, they tell me it's really infinitesimal and not really of significance. I had a lot of cardiologists say I've never seen a case in my life. And there is also some discussion of retinal toxicity where it causes damage to the retina in your eye. And I'm told by my ophthalmology doctor friends that that only happens to people are on high dose for long periods of time, something that would not be necessary in the treatment of the coronavirus. And so I thought to myself, all right. So you got this medication, hydroxychloroquine, that sounds like it might be effective, and I start hearing in the media, oh, it's only anecdotal evidence. Dr. Fauci comes out and he refuses to to give any positive reflection on this medicine, which I thought was odd. I thought as I researched it more, there's actually quite a bit of research that supports the efficacy, how well it works, of hydroxychloroquine. As a peripheral observer, so I'm an orthopedic surgeon. I'm not really the kind of doctor that typically would prescribe this. Um, and even I was aware the dose is 200 milligrams twice a day and that you um, you want to treat people early in the disease. So you don't wait till somebody needs to be on a ventilator to initiate the treatment with hydroxychloroquine. You want to start before they get sick. Now, hydroxychloroquine is a very cheap generic drug that doesn't stand to make anybody a ton of money and i'm just putting it out there why is there such a concerted effort to discredit hydroxychloroquine i'm going to give you guys a little bit more information later on but i'm just telling you as an educated doctor who's been treating people for a long time hydroxychloroquine is not much more than Tylenol to me in terms of risk. And Tylenol is the safest, most used drug around. Uh, Nobody really thinks twice about using it if you need it. Hydroxychloroquine is very similar. Chances are if you've been on a mission trip to Nicaragua or something like that and you weren't sick, you, you probably took some hydroxychloroquine as prophylaxis against getting malaria. And we have treatments for malaria, so it's not necessary that you take the hydroxychloroquine the point i'm trying to make is we know it's safe people that are rheumatoid arthritic patients rheumatoid arthritis patients people with lupus those people tend to be sickly people and they take it for long periods of time and it's very safe among them and so i'm sitting here as a very interested observer an educated person and i'm wondering why are they having such a hard time with hydroxychloroquine And the more the media presented that it doesn't work, the more I'm investigating and I'm learning, no, it really seems to work. And they keep telling me there's no research on it, and I'm realizing there's a ton of research on it. Now, the type of research that Fauci came out and said, well, we need to do these randomized crossover prospective to get really good data. Well, anybody knows that to do a study like that takes a really long time, and we're in the middle of a pandemic common sense tells me that I operate from a position of do no harm. Hydroxychloroquine is no harm. The chances of you having a negative side effect of hydroxychloroquine is extraordinarily low. If you are now sick with coronavirus, the potential benefits of taking this medicine far exceed the risk of side effects. Well, I think what happened was the people that were vested in trying to squash the use of hydroxychloroquine realized that their media stories saying that it was dangerous when we all know it's not, that uh, that it was not effective when we were hearing more and more information that it was infect- or effective, they suddenly came out with an FDA statement that banned the use of hydroxychloroquine saying that they've confirmed that it was unsafe. And that's why they were making it so that you could only use it at a hospital. And I thought to myself, why in the world would anybody do that? First of all, the FDA does not have the power to prevent doctors from prescribing medications that are already FDA approved. The indication is up to the doctor. Once it's FDA approved, I don't have to have FDA approval to use an already approved medication for a different treatment. This is the practice of medicine this is the art of medicine. Verapamil is a very common blood pressure medication that seems to work for migraine and is commonly prescribed for migraine. Botox is for wrinkles in your forehead, but it's used to treat migraine. It's used in orthopedics to help with spastic conditions of muscles. Synvisc is a medication or it's an injection that we, it's FDA approved for use in knees to help people with arthritic conditions, but Guess what? I use it in shoulders and ankles, too, because I'm a doctor practicing the art of medicine. Hydroxychloroquine is a safe medication. This is a fact. This is not my opinion. This is a fact. Hydroxychloroquine is a safe medication that has a 70-year track record that is already FDA approved. I should be able to prescribe this for my patients the same way. If I have a friend who calls me and says, hey, my wife's had an upper respiratory tract infection for several months now, and they can't seem to shake it, would you mind calling in a pack? We do this all the time because the medicine is safe and the potential upsides are high. Hydroxychloroquine is the same thing. So now we've got a situation where we're into this pandemic a bit, and I'm starting to realize that the information that we're getting is highly politicized. And the way that I know this is that One party wants to open up the economy and things like that, and another party wants to keep us locked down forever. And what I am here to do is tell you that based on the medicine, we need to open up this economy. We have an understanding of this virus that it affects primarily older people with comorbidities, and we should quarantine those. I'm keeping my mom on lockdown. I'm protecting her. But my kids nobody under the age of 18 has died from COVID-19 at my last check. We need to get kids back to school. We already know that this virus is out in the world, meaning there are people out there who have it and don't know it and are spreading it to other people. This is a fact that this is happening. And the other reason I know that politics is affecting our decision making is The whole purpose of the quarantine was to what we call flatten the curve, okay? And everybody says the phrase flatten the curve, but I'm not sure everybody understands what that means. Flattening the curve meant we were afraid that so many people were going to get sick, that they were going to flood into our hospitals and overwhelm the system so that there wouldn't be enough doctors to take care of them. They wouldn't have enough ventilators to treat them. We wouldn't have enough medication to to treat them. We would not have enough PPE to protect our healthcare workers. And so the idea was let's quarantine. We'll make it so that it takes longer for everybody to get infected. And then that way we don't overwhelm the hospitals. Well, that time has come and gone. Even when we were at our peak, our hospitals were not overwhelmed. Okay. I work in Atlanta. I work at most of the major hospitals here. I get emails updating me on the number of people that are in the ICU that have infections with COVID-19. And I'm telling you, we are not overwhelmed. So the point is, we have the ability to start getting back into our lives, start opening up the economy, and some people will get sick. That is a fact. And we will treat them with our treatment that's available. But there is nothing that we can do that is going to allow us to get back to a normal semblance of life That's going to involve zero risk. That's just not possible. And so creating the greatest economic disaster for a pandemic that is going to end up having a death rate similar to flus and other things we experienced in the past, in my humble opinion, does not even remotely justify putting people out of business and destroying the economy. We have flattened the curve in most places in the United States. The curve never needed to be flattened because there never was a curve. Okay, so Nebraska does not need to have and never needed to have the same kind of shutdown that New York does. Now, even when we look at New York City, New York City is responsible for roughly New York and New Jersey for for about half of all the cases, deaths and infections of COVID-19. Why is that? I don't know. Uh, we are starting to learn that there are different strains of this virus. Some are more virulent than others, meaning some virus strains are make people more sick, some less sick. But we need to start getting real information out to people and help them understand that, number one, if you're young, the chances are you're not going to get this virus. If you don't have any comorbid conditions and you're young, you really have a low risk. People under the age of 18 don't seem to be infected at all. And places like mine, My practice, I've been 100% open just about. I mean, we've had some limitations. I made some practical decisions. I've sent some people to work from home who could. Um, I did not operate on anybody who I thought might take up a hospital bed because I didn't know if we were going to be overrun. I wouldn't have a problem doing it now because I know for a fact, not only are we not being overrun, but hospitals are laying people off in droves. Some hospitals are going bankrupt because they have no business. People are not showing up at the emergency rooms for other issues that need attention because people are so redlined hysterical and afraid of dying of COVID-19. We need to start getting people to look at the facts and start to understand that this virus is definitely a threat. It is definitely causing a problem and it's definitely something we should pay attention to. But it does not by any means justify shutting down our economy and creating the greatest economic disaster in human history. 26 million people filed for unemployment so far. We've printed trillions and trillions of dollars on top of the trillions and trillions of dollars that we spend every year that we don't have. And we are going to see the negative ramifications of these decisions for a long time. We have to start getting people back to work. My practice, as I said, I've been almost completely open the entire time. We haven't had a single incident. This means this can be done. You can wash hands. You can social distance common sense wise, meaning you don't have to stay in your house, but just when you go out, just don't let somebody cough on you. You know, I've stopped shaking hands like most of us have. I don't touch surfaces that I don't need to. I keep hand sanitizer with me. Um, I keep Lysol wipes, to mostly because my wife wants me to wipe down the steering wheel and all that kind of stuff. I mean, there are common sense things that we can do to mitigate the risk, but the idea that you're going to have zero risk is irrational. We don't do anything with zero risk. I get up every morning and I drive to work and I make the decision that I'm going to accept the risk that I could be killed in a car crash in order to get to work, to live my life and earn money for my family so that my kids can have a life as well. That's kind of the decision that we're making here. And I believe we have enough data. I know for a fact we have enough data to understand this. I also know that this is highly, highly politicized. And so it's really, we've really gotten to a point where we cannot think critically anymore because we're all accused of being political, being hyper partisan, being conspiracy theorists. And what I'd like to do is just present to you common sense understanding, looking at the numbers. One of the things I always tell people is, do you know anybody who's died of coronavirus? I don't. Now, again, this is not to say that this is not a threat and this is not serious. It is. There is definitely a serious pandemic that's going on out there, but it is not killing all of us. It is not as widespread as the media would like you to believe. And it is not dangerous to a large portion of our population, meaning the young people who are healthy. The whole uh, attack against hydroxychloroquine is absolutely irrational. Why is this happening? Hydroxychloroquine is a safe medication. It's been around for 70 years. It's got one of the safest profiles I know. I've talked to all of my doctor friends who prescribe it all the time, and they're telling me this is one of the safest medications out there. And yet the FDA comes out suddenly and bans doctors from prescribing it. They don't even have this power. Doctors are allowed to prescribe medications that are already FDA approved. It doesn't matter what the indication is. So why would they do that? I would see a patient in my clinic. Doc, I've had a bit of a cough. I'm having a little bit of fever some shortness of breath. It's been going on for a couple days now. I would say, you know what? It's possible you have this COVID-19. You know what I want to do? I want to prescribe you hydroxychloroquine, 200 milligrams a day, and let's see how you do. I'll bet you, based on the literature that I'm studying, because I'm practicing medicine, the art of medicine, which means I filter information and I make risk assessments and I present those risks and benefits to my patients, and that's how we implement care. My thinking is that a lot of the people that I did that, that I gave this cheap medicine would get better and never have to go to the hospital. I'm now starting to think about why is it that people are so worried that community doctors may prescribe a safe medication and prevent people from going to the hospital? Why would that be? And I'm, again, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm just asking the question, why is this? It's a safe medication. It's potentially beneficial. I'm a doctor. Don't tell me there's no research out there. I've been reading it now for two, three months. There's ample research to compel me to prescribe this medication. Now, I'm starting to read things like um, Johnson & Johnson has committed a billion dollars in January to an entity called BARDA, the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority. This is a branch of the Health and Human Services and they've been working on a vaccine. Now, I'm not going to get into the whole is the vaccine, are they, are they purposely blocking the use of this cheap medication so that they can then make a ton of money off of a vaccine that they're developing? I'm not here to tell you that's happening or not happening. I'm just telling you Hydroxychloroquine is a cheap, safe medication that's easy for people to prescribe. And the medical literature that I'm studying is telling me that it's potentially very effective. And Johnson & Johnson committed a billion dollars in January to BARDA to develop a vaccine. Now, other things I've noticed, Anthony Fauci, the NIH director of virology, our number one microbiologist, you know, he's he's uh, been in charge of hiv research and ebola and now the coronavirus he cannot bring himself to just say yeah i think hydroxychloroquine might be effective i i can't believe it why won't you just say it it's possible you're not committing to anything there's enough literature to just say it hydroxychloroquine could be effective he will not do it but yet he came out today or yesterday and And he said that remdesmavir, which has far less research on it, which is an antiviral vaccine or an antiviral medication, is looking promising. How can you make the statement about this medicine, but you can't say it about hydroxychloroquine? I'm just pointing out observations that give me pause. So we have a virus, a coronavirus, that's not novel in the sense that it's not like we've never seen a coronavirus before we know about it it has gone throughout the world we're on the back side of the curve the curve's been flattened we have potentially treatments for people with hydroxychloroquine i i know they won't let me prescribe it in the community but if you go to the hospital it's still being used for treatment along with other things the risk Population seems to be people in their 70s and 80s with comorbid conditions. Young, healthy people seem to be—I don't want to say immune, but very unlikely to have serious, long-lasting complications or death. Very unlikely. I think it's time to open up the economy.
1: Dr. Barber, uh, one of the things I would like to ask, and I'm sure this is on the minds of some of the some of our listeners. And, and I want to mention, as I did to you, that on uh, May the 7th at 10 a.m., we're going to have Dr. Nicole Sapphire on, who is on Fox & Friends frequently, and uh, <clears throat> she's written her, her book about uh, Let's Make America Healthy Again. And over and over again uh, during the your show today, you've mentioned the fact that this strikes older people with previous conditions of some sort or the other. Uh, it can be lung conditions or heart conditions or whatever, or diabetes or whatever. But the point of the story is we also do a show uh, with our Kung Fu master who's very much obviously into meditation and um, he's spoken at the number one or supposedly the number one medical schools throughout the United States, uh, United States over the past years talking about mind over body basically and meditation and what it can do if you've got a good immune system and correct me i'm not a doctor I'm not trying to play doctor but if you've got a good immune system do you need to really need to worry about uh covid19 and i bring this up too as i was coming into work uh, the radio station i was listening to was talking about twins that were just born both parents tested positive to COVID-19, and neither twin had any, did not test positive to it. They had no symptoms, no nothing as they were born. So, you know, I think there's still a lot of uh, questions out, but if we take care of, if each of us takes care of ourselves, I think we'll get past this quicker than, uh, you know, the fat slob that keeps eating the uh, Twinkies.
0: Well, the first thing I would say is that everything is risk assessment. Whenever anybody asks me anything in medicine, I always say, we never say never, and we never say always in medicine. There are always outliers. But what's common? You know, we talk about the bell curve. I want to talk about what's common. Commonly within that bell curve, young people are not affected. To my knowledge, the last time I looked, nobody under the age of 18 has died of coronavirus. The chances of dying, we're looking at the Italian data, of people under the age of 50 with no comorbid conditions is almost nil. And I bet when you go, you know, you can always show me the anecdotal, the one-off day, if there's a person here 36, I bet you if you go look and scrutinize their medical condition, you could find something that represented a comorbid condition. So I don't just accept it at face value when they say a 36-year-old person from Louisiana died with no comorbid conditions. That's not always true. We don't know if they were smokers, they were vaping, you know, there's a ton of factors that we don't know. And so what I'm trying to say is we have enough information to know that the risk to young, healthy people is extremely low. Now, I'm a free thinker. I'm a free market guy. I, I'm i a freedom guy. My next door neighbor is a very smart, educated, compassionate. I, I love this family. Their daughter plays with my daughter. They basically... She lives at our house, you know, she's uh, she's an adopted child after they you know, all of their other kids are gone from the house. So she's an essentially an only child. So she's always over at my house playing with my kids. She has been locked down this entire time. And I sent a text to the parents saying, hey, listen, I know you guys are nervous. I want you to know it's okay to send her over to see us and to play with us, you know, play with my kids that I have no problem with it. But I completely respect You're, you know, if you're afraid and you don't want to, you don't have to. I just wanted to extend the invitation. She's still not been over They're, They're letting her now go into their front yard and our daughter's going to our front yard. And they, you know, they've been doing yoga and and kind of playing that way. And listen, people have their own risk tolerances. But the way the government is doing things now where they're allowing one business to open and another business not to open They're making these assertions about we got to continue to flatten the curve when the curve the first time never materialized. There's another side to this ledger. Businesses like my brother's business completely wiped out. People's life savings completely burned through in order to sustain themselves through this lockdown. There is a risk assessment that needs to be made, and we are giving far too much power to the government to make these decisions. And if we just review what's happened to this point, they've been wrong on everything. It's been a complete disaster. They've made terrible decisions. Now, I don't fault the president. He's been getting information from people around him. He has no medical training. And I think the decisions he made early on were very rational, locking down the country when we didn't really understand how this was going to play out. It was rational. But now it's not. We know enough to start opening up the country, wash our hands, reasonable social distancing left up to the individual. Let us get back to work. Protect the old and the vulnerable, and we're going to get through this. You guys can reach out to me with questions on my Twitter handle at Dr. Scott underscore Atlanta. That's at Dr. Scott, at Dr. Scott at underscore Atlanta. Um, and I'll, I'll be happy to uh, answer any of your questions about the coronavirus. I want to thank you guys for listening to me during this episode of the doctor's lounge on america's web radio we'll keep you guys updated on coronavirus and i'll see you guys next time i'm scott barber have a great day you're listening to america's web radio on the americas broadcast network.com thank you for listening